The Money Cafe is proudly brought to you by InvestSmart's professionally managed accounts. Diversified portfolios of ETFs with a capped fee. T's and C's apply. Find out more at investsmart.com.au. Hello, I'm Alan Collar, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and a columnist for the New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Um, so what do you think of the chemist warehouse deal that was announced? Well, no, it wasn't announced yesterday. It was leaked or something. Yeah, well, no, we, we're still waiting the exact details. But this is the, the sort of white whale of capital markets in this country. I reckon for the last... Um, five or six years, maybe even longer, the idea that Chemist Warehouse could be floated on the ASX has been like this mythical beast. I remember going to Hong Kong for some investor conference, 2019, I think it was, and they were up there. The Chemist Warehouse guys were up there. They had a dinner with these fund managers, and I tried to find out, talk to some of the fund managers. It was so hush-hush. It was like it was like they were floating the nuclear codes or something. But anyway, now we're going to finally get to have a look. At so it. they would have been looking. They would have been exploring the option of an IPO back then. Back for then, sure. talking to investors, saying, "Here's what we're about. Here's what the company is." I mean, everyone knows Chemist Warehouse, but there are some really interesting bits inside Chemist Warehouse. I mean, if you have um, lots of us have been into a store, of course, and you, you'd notice you get bombarded with advertising as you walk around the thing. There's screens everywhere. There's, um, you know, flogging Rexona or, you know, the latest wellness um, product. That's a business. That's a business that earns $600 million in revenue across the, you know, Woolworths and Coles have these advertising businesses inside their stores too. But the Chemist Warehouse one is big and successful. So there's lots of interesting things to look at in Chemist Warehouse. I mean, including how they've sidestepped the pharmacy <laughs> Yeah, regulation. Tell, us, tell us about that. What what regulations have they sidestepped? So there's a regulation. There's regulations that basically govern how many pharmacists can be in an area, how far apart they are. It's basically carves up the market and protects the pharmacists. And it, one of the regulations is it restricts ownership. You can own a certain amount of chemists. Now, Chemist Warehouse obviously has got round that. It's not really ever clear to me exactly how they've done it. I think it's through partnerships with individual pharmacies, joint ventures, sort of like franchise arrangements. But anyway, they've got rounded, obviously. With 500 stores. 500 stores, yeah. And they've gone into New Zealand and Hong Kong and a few other places in a small way. But yeah, it's 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 an amazing retail story. Sure, but you know, obviously they've the guys. What's his name? Jack Ganson, Mario Verocco, have decided that now's the time to sell. Yeah, well. So the question is, would you buy from them? Uh, y- yes, that is the question, and that's the interesting part here. This isn't an IPO where you'll have to where investors will make a decision to buy from them. This is a reverse takeover or a backdoor listing where a company called Sigma which is worth $800 million. Well, and Sigma, Sigma owns Amcal, yeah. Guardian Pharmacies. And also so, distributes pharmaceuticals to Chemist Warehouse. Right. Um, they will take over uh, Chemist Warehouse and issue lots of stock, like, you know, eye-watering amounts of stock to the Chemist Warehouse shareholders to do that. So it's a brown snake swallowing a goat. <laughs> exactly. Yes, <laughs> indeed. So... Um, 
yeah, it's it's the reason they're doing it this way is because the IPO market is closed. It's been shut for two years. In fact, we've only seen two IPOs worth more than a billion dollars in the last five years, and both of those were done, you know, during the pandemic frenzy in 2021. So, does this involve um, uh, Jack and Mario uh, getting out? I mean, are they are they cashing out? That's or? what uh, that's what we don't know. Um, I, I would imagine there'll be some lockup that they won't be able to sell their shares for a certain period. But you know, the fact that they've been doing these invested discussions for years says that they want to get out in some way, whether that's a partial sell down or whatever it is. So we wait wait for the di- wait. For it the is details. one of the great Australian retail success stories, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, phenomenal, absolutely incredible. And you, uh, you think of. I mean, you think of the way um, supermarkets have you know, smashed the milk bars by getting better at convenience and having longer open hour, opening hours and all that sort of thing. I mean, chemist warehouse have done that to yeah. lots of neighbourhood chemists. I mean, the, the other uh, Australian retail success story I was thinking of was Aesop, which sold to Oriol for, one, I think, $1.7 billion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was fantastic to- what, yeah, what, we've actually had a, a few this year. Zimmerman, remember the fashion brand we talked about, sold for a billion dollars. So Australians still do shop shop stuff well. Yeah, <laughs> that's I for think sure. That's true. So, but I mean, the one good thing about this is, obviously, we've been talking about Origin Energy takeover and a lot for a long time, and and lots of companies going private, lots of good Australian companies yeah. going private. What we haven't had is the regeneration of the of the index where the companies listing. So this is a Good yeah. big company that comes on, and you know, bigger than JB Hi-Fi, bigger than Mervac. Um, yeah. yeah, good, good for the market. Um, so uh, we had GDP yesterday. Yes, I watched your ABC News. You, you were a bit down. Oh, it was yes. Yeah, was, was it called the good, the bad, the uglier, and the uglier, or something? Oh gosh, the really ugly, the really ugly. Yeah. Well, the the ugly and the really ugly were uh, productivity. Yeah. yeah. I mean, GDP per hour's worked. Uh, it's falling. Yes. It's fallen dramatically. Dramatically, six percent or something, right? Six percent in two years. I mean, yeah. you know, this is this is big. I, I reckon that's a big deal. Absolutely, it's a big deal. Particularly, I mean, we had an RBA rate decision this week, a hold, and in in that statement again, Michelle Bullock said, "Oh, wage growth's fine as long as we get a pickup in productivity." Yeah, but where's you know, it coming from? Well, that's right. I mean, uh, there's never been a decline in productivity like this yeah. in, in the past. Yes. I mean, the other thing, the, the bad, was the decline in per capita GDP. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was interesting because uh, I was kind of waiting to see this because the last um, GDP release for the June quarter showed uh, per capita, that is, you know, GDP divided by population, uh, in the two quarters, March and June, were both minus 0.3. Yes, and in this release, the March one had been revised to zero. Right, right. Revised up. So the recession... The g- and the... So it was a recession, a per capita recession, as everyone said at the time. Yeah. Two quarters in a row of, of negative per capita GDP. And then uh, March was revised up. June was revised up a little to yeah. minus 0.1. But um, uh, September quarter, just released yesterday, was minus 0.5. So it's sort of it's getting worse. Whether, yes. whether you go with the pre, the earlier figures or the revised ones, it's it's getting you know it's getting worse in terms of 
GDP divided by population. And this is all about the, the level of migration at the moment, isn't it? I mean, that, that's that's what's compounding well, this uh, this downward trajectory. Well, that's uh, well, that is why the economy is seen to be growing. Yeah, that's the entire reason the Australian economy is growing. Without the immigration that we're seeing at the moment, uh, we would be in recession. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is a bit sobering when you think about it. Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, you know, the economy. So uh, well, this has happened before. I had a graph of per capita GDP going back to 1982, and there have been a larger, much larger number of per capita recessions than actual ones. Actual recessions, <laughs> yeah. of, of which there are only two: 1982 and 1991. We should say, though, Alan. I mean, and we've talked about this before. You know, what? What? How do you define a recession? Is it two quarters of negative growth? Or do you have to see some tick up in unemployment? And that's the thing that we're not seeing. That The labour market is still pretty tight. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It, or another way to put it is it's strong. So does the GDP numbers matter that much? No, no, I don't think they do. That's right. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think businesses would prefer to see uh, unemployment increase. Um, Tim Gurner actually kind of... <laughs> Uh, put that into words. Most business people shut up about yeah. that. But he, what do, what do you say again exactly? Oh, he said it needs to go up 30 to 50% to help, you know, bring costs down and take heat yeah. out of the economy. So, you know, he let the cat out of the bag a bit. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, that, and that's kind of why businesses to some extent are urging the government to have a higher immigration because they want unemployment to go up, but it's not happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, how is this the sort of balance we've got here between economic growth, migration? A lot of this feeds into housing. We've seen another bunch of housing numbers this week, and you obviously had the quarterly essay out. Is that the question you've been asked most? How do we think about migration in, after compounding this? Oh, know, look, it's, it's one of them. I've done a lot of radio in the past week yeah. or so, some of it talkback. Right. You know, everyone's got an idea. Everyone's got the solution right. to the problem. Any of them actual, actually stick out to you as workable? Oh, look, uh, you know, th- I think all of them. Like, the thing about housing is there are a whole bunch of solutions and everyone's got an opinion as to which is the one that should be used. Yeah. Um, but the truth is that all of them need to be, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what I've been saying about immigration is that it wouldn't be too hard you know, really, to tailor immigration to the to the construction capacity of the uh, of the uh, of the industry, yeah, because the ABS publishes housing approvals. Yes, you right? get forward guidance. So you get forward <laughs> guidance, right? Because approvals turn into a house about eighteen months, two years time, right? Yeah. So, you, you, the, the, and there are two point four eight people per house on average. So you could actually, if you wanted to, you could say next year's immigration is going to be. 2.48 times housing approvals. Yes, yes, gotcha. Yep. You know, and then uh, that'd be fine. Yeah. I mean, in, in a big picture sense. I mean, obviously the houses that are being built aren't specifically for the immigrants coming yes. in, but at least the um, the volume of housing would, the round rough, numbers would, would roughly equate to the population. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but nobody's thinking about housing when they... Uh, decide on how many immigrants are coming into the country. Yeah. J- just before we go to the questions, 
I, I reckon it's a really interesting time. The, the GDP recession, uh, per capita recession that you sort of pointed to, it's a really interesting time for all this data, economic data all over the world because stock markets, share markets are going nuts. Like we have seen the best November in, you know, 40 years, particularly in America on Wall Street. I think the market was up 13% or something like that in, in a month. And that's because everybody's banking on interest rates falling and falling relatively quickly. And so that gives relief to, to stocks. S- similar here, I think we were up 4.3% in November and that rally's continued. I, I just wonder though, like, it does feel to me like investors are trying to have it all. If interest rates need to fall, that means if, interest rate, if, if central banks need to cut interest rates, that means the economy is softening and potentially softening quickly. That's not generally good for corporate profits. And so, yes, you, you can understand why the prospect of rates coming down fires up equities, but is that a sort of short-term sugar hit before reality sets in that – um, you know, we might need rate cuts because things are turning down relatively quickly. Yeah, well, so the, the best thing for equity price share prices is uh, rate cuts, soft landing. Yeah, that's the kind of that's the combination that markets love. Yes, and what's happened in the past month is that market investors have adjusted their thinking towards that. Yes, they're all um, in on it. <laughs> yeah, the soft landing rate cuts. That's yeah. what. That's what. And and before that. It was uh, either no rate cuts or hard landing. Yeah. I mean, people, uh, th- there was kind of, uh, uh, and I think there was a debate going on really as to Absolutely. whether whether there'd be a hard landing or not. You know, is the US going to go into a recession? Um, and uh, that's been resolved. I think the markets have now decided that there's going to be no US recession. Yes. And um, accordingly have adjusted pricing uh, of shares. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's. I think it's more or less as simple as that. Now, you know, obviously, who knows if they if it's right or not? Yeah, there's yeah. still a debate. I mean, you know, some people I talk to are still saying there'll be a recession. Yep, but it's not what you'd call a consensus view anymore. No, it's definitely not. A soft landing is the absolute consensus view, and I guess that's what I'm sort of pointing out here. When everybody's thinking the same thing, that's usually when you can be badly surprised. So, that's true. So just be a bit wary that... Oh, well, that's true. That, I mean, if, that, if it turns out America has a hard landing, yeah. uh, then it'll be terrible for stocks. Things Absolutely, get, it'll be terrible. Yeah. No doubt about it. And, I, you know, part of, the, part of the issue to think about for investors now is how much of the soft landing, how much of the, the good news is in the price now. Yes, that's right. And, you know, right. a fair bit of it after 13%. On the market, that's yeah. a fair bit of it's in. Stocks up, bonds up, crypto sure. up. Everything's up. Everything up. Bitcoin's going mad. Bitcoin's going mad, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's uh, particularly this week. Gold. This week, Bitcoin's shot yeah. up this week. It has. I mean, it's, it's up. Uh, Bitcoin is up. I think it, I think I'm right in saying Bitcoin's up 55% since the middle of October. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. And, and um, uh, a lot of it has to do with... Uh, a few big investors like BlackRock applying to have an ET- a Bitcoin ETF. Yes. You know, and they're still waiting for approval, yes. but it's assumed that if BlackRock wants something, they'll get it. Yeah, although they've been waiting most of the year, but yes, I, I think you're absolutely right that that's what's stoking this up. Yeah, with reason. If there is a, if there is a solid, what you'd call establishment Bitcoin ETF, well, 
you know, put down the glasses, folks. <laughs> yes, <fair laughs> I reckon. I, I, I think so. Fair enough. Um, yes. Now, before we go to the questions, let's have a quick word from our sponsor, InvestSmart, which owns uh, Eureka Report. InvestSmart's professionally managed accounts is a digital wealth platform with diversified investment portfolios overseen by Australia's most trusted finance experts, including Paul Clitheroe, Effie Zahos, and the Money Cafe's Alan Kohler. Join thousands of Australians growing their wealth through InvestSmart's managed portfolios. Check out investsmart.com.au for more information. Okay, first question is from Dawn. Uh, she loved last week's banter. Uh, you probably didn't hear this, but I had we had uh, Stephen and I had a bit of a set too in the end. Oh, um, well, you know because Stephen's uh, in favour of stage three tax cuts, right, going ahead, right. and I'm kind of saying, well, they should at least be, you know, repurposed or yes, okay. refocused in some way towards uh, the people who arguably don't ne- do need it, rather than those who don't. Um, Dawn says, I'm with you on stage three tax cuts and like your idea of RBA power over some taxation. Mm. Um, Government won't do the hard stuff because they want to be re-elected. Yes, they do indeed. Dawn's question is, with what is is playing out between Origin and Oz Super in five to ten years' time, when industry super funds are considerably larger and will potentially yield more influence on the local share market, how do you think this might impact retail shareholder and active fund manager returns? And I was particularly interested in your answer. <laughs> yes, well, I th- this is something I think about a lot, and, and I knew it would be um, because I think we. I was speaking to a very senior regulator a few weeks ago, and he said he is doing this every day, and even he said, "I'm not sure we ever f- quite thought through what 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 it means for the super funds to get as big as they are, and what we've seen it." Uh, Oz, at Origin is that Oz Super has knocked over this takeover deal, uh, $20 billion takeover deal, because it has a different view of the market. Oz Super's average member stays with the fund for 45 years. Now, lots of investors like to say that they're, you know, Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger and they've got a long term view. Most of them would struggle to see 45 weeks ahead. <laughs> Which is, that's human nature. There's nothing wrong with that. But Oz Super is is genuinely got to take this 45-year view and it changes the way they see stocks. So I, I think, I don't know what the answer is in terms of how it might help, how it might impact shareholder returns, but I think we will see these guys using their influence in ways that we don't quite expect it. Now, they knocked over this takeover bid with 17% stake. They didn't have a majority they didn't even have 20%. They had 17%, but they, they decided this uh, whether this takeover will go ahead. And I think increasingly we will see super funds deciding, does this takeover go ahead? Does this project get financed? Does this IPO get up? So their power is going to be immeasurable. Now, the good thing is they their incentives are matched up with retail investors. They want their members to make money over the long term. And, and retail shareholders want to make money over the long term. The question I've got is people's definition of long term is different. Mm. Lots of people, 70% of origin investors wanted to take the money and run because they've got a different view of value to Oz Super. But Oz Super's value because of Oz Super's view because of their size. Yeah, but as day. you say, most investors uh, might talk the long term, but what they want is cash right now. Absolutely. They want the return now. <laughs> yep. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean – 
Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? it, it it's it's hugely interesting. Uh, I, I'm I'm not saying it's wrong. I don't think I think Oz Super has got 3.3 million members and is sticking up for them in the way that government regulation tells them to. You know, yeah. that, that's that's really it. Yeah, I don't know if they're right or not, but they're they're doing what they says they have to do on the tin. Yeah. A Duncan says if Japan Japan keeps printing money yet has inflation, why are they not on track to be like Argentina? There seems to be some difference in their approach to preventing hyperinflation. Yeah, I read somewhere once that, uh, that, I can't remember who said it, someone said there are four types of countries in the world. There's developing countries, developed countries, Argentina and Japan. (laughs) Yes, right. (laughs) And, And Argentina and Japan are... Very different countries, each of them, yes. to everyone else. Yeah. And they're also different from each other. And uh, I had a piece on Japan the, uh, in the New Daily this week mm. um, just saying, um, isn't it interesting that they, their, their cash rate, their you know, official interest rate, has stayed at 0.1%. Yeah. Still there. Yeah. Zero, minus 0.1%. Yeah. And, and uh, no, minus 0.1%. No real intention to change. No, that's right. They don't believe this inflation they're getting now is real. And well, it's all lasting, and it's not much inflation. No, true. It's gone to four percent, you yeah. know, which is still less than ours. Yeah, um, and they they're printing money. I mean, the government, the the Bank of Japan is financing the government. You know, they they own fifty three percent of the government's bonds. Does it come down to the Japanese are huge savers? Is is that the that's a part thing? of it? Um, but I think it kind of uh, it really reinforces the idea that. Um, uh, that printing money and you know low interest rates and so on are not necessarily inflationary. It depends on the economy's ability to supply. Yeah. The you know it's 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 not it isn't necessarily inflationary to print money. Yes. It depends on what else what else is going on in the economy. Yeah. Yep. And so Argentina constantly has high inflation. Although up until about 1975, Argentina was okay. It's just that the it's just that their um, their governance in the past few decades has been incompetent. Yeah. yeah. And, and the other thing is that they actually don't print money to Argentina. They uh, borrow it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, so, so... That's a good point. It's not the central bank of Argentina that's buying the bonds. It's, it's, the, rest of the, it's the rest of the world. So they, can't, they continually get in hock to the rest of the world, mm. can't, service the, can't service the debt, uh, have to go to the IMF, yeah, you know, and go broke and default on the bonds and all this stuff, and then the the currency goes down, goes down some more, inflation starts again, but uh, Japan has this you know d- delightful solution. This we're you know we're not selling the bonds to the world, we're buying them ourselves, buying them ourselves. Uh, new Argentinian president in four days, and uh, he's promised the electric uh, electric shock therapy for the economy. So that'll be well. Not only not only is the Bank of Argentina not going to be buying Argentinian bonds, it's, not going it's to going to be, to be abolished. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> I, I read today he's going to privatize everything. Everything that can be put into the hands of the private sector will be put into the hands of the private sector. Hmm. What a what a fascinating experiment. It's going to be really interesting to oh, watch. Yeah. I mean It's going to, well, yeah, but we shouldn't we? Yeah, we what? Our Argentinian listeners are going to have to live through it, right? <laughs> We're sitting here going, "Oh, this is an interesting experiment." These poor Argentinians are going to be sitting there going, "Oh, here we go again." I don't think they'll be on the streets before long. I mean, no, honestly. Yeah. Well, that's he, what got him to power, though, right? So maybe they've got to give him a Yeah, but he's going to, but he's, you know, he's going to pr- 
privatise everything, and then they're going to cut the wages. Um, and raise the prices. <laughs> and raise the prices, yeah. and everyone's going uh, everyone's going to be out with the uh, pitchforks. Yeah. Anyway. Chris says, uh, every budget session season, the federal government of the day reports a nice little windfall from iron ore because the price achieved was higher than their estimates. Instead of this additional revenue going back into the budget to be spent, do you think it would be better if instead of it was put into a sovereign wealth fund, much like Norway, Norway have created with their petroleum revenues? Any income returns from the wealth fund could then go into the budget instead of spending all the benefit on, of our finite resources. Well, yeah... Yes, Chris, but it's got to be a surplus first. I mean, that's what uh, Costello, Peter Costello did. There, there were surpluses from iron ore revenue um, and they went into a sovereign wealth fund called the Future Fund, Yep, which had a specific purpose, still does, of paying for public servant superannuation. Yes. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. it's got to be a surplus. The, the, and the other thing worth noting is that Norway runs much higher tax rates than Australia, so that allows them to, you know, both pay for lots of services and stuff that the government needs to do, and put this money aside. So, if we di- if we were to put the use the hollow log of iron ore uh, budget estimates to put money into a sovereign wealth fund, you know that that money's not available to pay for stuff that we the NDIS, defence, health, so. It, it, it's you know you're no, putting it you're putting it aside for the next generation, but you don't get it now. So no, but that's right. But that's why we haven't got a surplus. Well, we, that's we, right. We yeah. might have a surplus next year, but um, yes. yes. Matt says, Alan, I read your quarterly essay. It was brilliant. Quick question: Do you think you missed the impact of superannuation in the book? I would suspect that another key driver of the increase in house prices to income ratio from three and a half to seven times is people's willingness to spend a greater proportion of their income on housing knowing they have another bank account with their nest egg for retirement. Definitely not the only force, but I think another factor in a complicated debate. I hadn't thought about it like that. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, uh, another way to look at it is the superannuation takes some money out of their pockets, out of everyone's pockets, so they have less money to spend on housing. Um, yeah. I mean, but it possibly changes people's attitude towards their retirement. I mean, uh, to be honest, I don't, I'm not sure that many – well – Okay, a lot of people are buying investment properties, have been buying investment properties to fund their retirement, or at least as retirement plays. Yes. That's true. So, yes. you know, I suppose to, to an extent, if, you, if you've got a fair bit in super, then, you know, you're less inclined to do that. Yeah, so yeah. maybe that's right. Interesting idea. But I certainly didn't discuss it in the S. <laughs> uh, Luke says, it was a pleasure to meet you, Alan, at your book launch. Do you think Australia will have a shift to long-term rentals? If yes, when do you think this is most likely to occur? Uh, it's happening. The, I mean, that's what the build-to-rent sector is about. That That's designed to have longer-term rentals. Now, longer-term than we have now. Like, I'm not sure we're going to the European-style decade-long rentals, but there is a shift going on. These The, the build-to-rent um, apartments are designed to be longer-term rentals. There's not much of it going on, is there? Oh, there's not heaps, but, uh, you know, it's, there, there's some of it. Super funds are getting into it. Mervac's getting into it. Yeah. yeah. But it's, I, I think Luke's right. It's a very gradual change. But there's some people, Evan Thornley, who's got long view, is keen to, to do something like this. Yep. Ian says, if we make housing less, of, uh, less unaffordable, then those that can already afford properties will just buy more. 
and expand their taxpayer-funded empires. Clearly, there are many people using their wealth in a way which harms others and society, and that is well past time to legislate a limit on not just the number of negatively geared properties one can own, but the overall number, regardless of gearing. What possible justification is there for allowing anyone to own a dozen or a hundred houses? Yep, should be banned. No, I'm not, uh, I don't think it should be banned. I think that regulating that sort of thing is uh, not the way to go. Um, I think that uh, people won't buy investment properties if they don't think the price is going to go up and they're not going to make a capital gain. Mm. I th- you know, it's sort of a circular argument in a way, but my argument is that um, <clears throat> the way to get people out of, out of the mindset that creating wealth is achieved by inv- owning properties, t- lots of them, is uh, to, in- to try to ensure that you, that's, that you don't create wealth that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a hard balance. We we, we need landlords, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we that's right. We need yeah. we need landlords, but we we need them to uh, be landlords uh, for the rent, not necessarily for the capital gain. Yes. Um, you know, you don't own a shop for capital gain. You own it for the rent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you know it'd be healthier for society if that's what was going on. I mean, that would imply higher rents, I suppose. Yes. So, sort of higher rental yields, but, you know, that's... I, but that's I think the kind of it both well, ways, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Stephos says, if I went and spent $1,000 on an item at the Black Friday sale and it was discounted by a huge 70%, so below cost, would that have any inflationary effect on the economy? <laughs> I've been thinking about Deflationary this. effect, I oh, presume he means deflationary yes. or disinflationary. Disinflationary, yeah. I've been thinking about this. I guess the answer is yes, provided it's in the CPI basket. And that it flowed through to, you know, what CPI tracks and measures. Uh, CPI is not on every product, it's on a basket of products. Yeah, that's right. And, this, and the ABS certainly measures the CPI according to the actual price of things, not the pre-discount price. Yes, yes. So I guess it would, but um, I think it would be lost. In, your, your individual purchase, Stephos, would probably be lost in the wash, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Ben says, my wife and I are both in the top tax bracket and I want to minimise tax by maximising my voluntary super contributions. At 33 years old, my wife thinks retirement is too far away for us and wants to dollar cost average invest in ETFs instead. What's your view? Do both, don't you? Sure. You have a a self-managed super fund. Right. And put the money into a dollar cost averaging ETF. Yeah. I mean... Or you have an ordinary super fund. Your voluntary community... Once you maximise your voluntary super contributions, it's not that much. You'll have money left over between the two of you if you're in the top tax bracket to do your dollar cost averaging. No, but you certainly should, uh, as step one, maximise your voluntary super contributions. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what you should do. Yeah. And if that's all you've got, then that's what you do. Yeah. But I think, I reckon if you're both in the top tax bracket, you'll have a bit of coin left over. You can both be happy. Exactly. Isn't that the secret to a wonderful marriage? Ian says, what actually happens when shareholders vote, when shareholders vote down a remuneration report? Hopefully the board doesn't get paid. <laughs> Probably not how it works, is it? No, uh, it's not. Ian, you're right. No. Uh, absolutely nothing happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> if there's two uh, votes against a remuneration report in a row, that's called two strikes, and the company can, has the option of uh, considering a motion to spill the board. I thought they had to. They do not. It is a... Uh, it's voluntary. It's voluntary. Yeah. Oh, for heaven's sake. Yeah. 
What a ridiculous... I, I actually thought they had to. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's voluntary. I'm positive it's voluntary. Well, crikey. What's uh, the point? Send all complaints to Stephen Main at um, the Money Cafe. <laughs> no, that, uh, yeah, you, you don't have to hold that yeah, vote. Right. No. Marianne says, I love the podcast and listen weekly, um, uh, but your advice last week and James is about low-cost or free financial advice for older people may have missed the mark a little. There is a free service. It's at Centrelink and it's called the Financial Information Service. There's no cost and they cover all sorts of personal finance finance topics, including pension planning and super. You can even meet the old-fashioned way in person. That is cool. Okay, it's great to hear. I didn't know that. I, I, and I, that is a problem that we both didn't know about and it's not well publicised, but massive thanks to Marianne. I think there's a bit of light on the hill for this too. The, the government has this morning announced a bunch of reforms to advice that is designed to make advice more accessible, a lot cheaper, um, and will bring advisors back into the market. Post the Royal Commission, you had to get university-level qualifications to be an advisor. That really whacked the number of advisors around. Um, but they're, they're setting up a system where there will be a lower level of qualifications. There will be different levels of advice, more like coaching or nudges or, you know, hand-holding, however you want to think about it. So I reckon the pendulum needs to swing back that way. This yep. stuff's complex. Sure. Um, so, if, everybody, if you want to take advantage of this or learn more about it, just Google Financial Information Service at Centrelink. Yeah. Final question from Bob. If all household mortgages in the US are fixed rate for 30 years, how does the US Reserve Bank manage inflation? Could Australia learn, adopt anything from the US on management of inflation? <laughs> so, they're not all 30 years. I mean, 30-year fixed rate mortgage is an option in the US. Um, now, with the 30-year fixed rate up at 8%, Fewer people are doing it. No one's moving. <laughs> Fewer people are doing it now than used to, were doing it three years ago in yep. the middle of the pandemic when it was 2%. Yep. But still, uh, it is an option in the US, it which is, isn't, yeah. it isn't here. I saw a stat the other day. I'm going to get this wrong, I think. But I thought I had said 70% of people have a mortgage uh, below 4%. So their incentive to move and get a new mortgage at 8% is zero. Yeah, that's right. And, and so and housing... But, and it does mean that the Federal Reserve board, which is their equivalent of the Reserve Bank, is finding it difficult to uh, control inflation well, or to have a pass-through of interest rates because yeah. everyone's, a lot of people are stuck on sitting on 30-year mortgages. Yeah. So, but, it, but, it, but by the same token, inflation is coming down there. The higher interest rates are working. So it's not just, it's not just mortgages that, um, that, that move the dial. Absolutely true. Yeah. That's right. Michelle Bullock would love me for saying that. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's it. Been great talking to you again, James. Uh, thanks for listening to Money Cafe, everyone. I'll be back next week with Stephen Main and James Thompson for our final episode of Money Cafe for the year. Wow. So if you've got a question for us then, um, please send it, send it in. If you didn't get your question read out today, sorry, we just got so many. You know, page after page of questions. Absolutely awesome. Um, which is great, but unfortunately we just cannot answer them all. Unless we go for a couple of hours, which we're not going to do. And um, Anyway, um, so until next week, uh, I'll see you later. I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, which is owned by Intelligent Investor. And I'm James Thompson, Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. <laughs>